Hello and welcome to Full Contact Nerd, where we talk about fiction and storytelling in all its forms. From the weird to the fantastic, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, thrillers, mysteries, anything you can ask for, we have it. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Alice James, author of Grave Secrets, published by Solaris, uh, today, September 1st, 2020. Thank you for speaking with me. Chris, it's a pleasure. So first, um, I'm sure you've had many ideas bubbling around in your head for a while. How did this particular idea rise up and get written and published? It was a huge accident. It was just one set of coincidences after another, I've got to say. I was trying to write a whodunit set on a cruise ship in the 20s, and it required so much research that I was getting just a few words done a day because I was trying to work out what people ate and what they wore and what they drank and how the ship worked. So I decided I would just write some short stories for a while. And I was reading a book about zombies, mm. a short, short story anthology of zombies. And I thought, well, this is disappointing. It's not really about the zombies. <laughs> it's just about the people who get eaten by the zombies that are running away <laughs> from the zombies. So I decided, being super stupid, that I could write a much better short story mm. that really focused on the zombies where they were center stage. And I started writing this short story. And Breeden, our, our friendly zombie, was going to be my star. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing just spiraled out of control. And I thought, okay, well, maybe it's a novella. And then somehow there was a murder mystery sneaking in there. I was like, okay, this is actually a novel, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And that's really what happened. I stopped four and a half months later, and I'd written a novel, and I had never intended to write a novel about zombies. Mm -hmm. So it was just a completely bizarre case of the characters was so interesting i just kept typing mm -hmm. and i see that it's not just about zombies it's also about vampires so um tell me a little bit about uh, about the book protagonist setting conflict yes i read an awful lot of paranormal fiction and i loved buffy and i loved it when the paranormal element is serious but the book is light-hearted mm. and that seems to be something you can see in, I mean, in, we had that film um, 28 Days Later, and that's the very dark side of zombies. Mm -hmm. But then we have films where there's much more lighter side. Um, and I thought, well, maybe I could bring that to the book. Mm -hmm. And so I was, I was going for, really just for tone. Um, in the book, that the zombies and zombies aren't necessarily pitched against each other, but that's the way my heroine does it. She pitches them against each other. Mm -hmm. So for them, it's actually an unexpected conflict as well. So I quite like that. So it's not just the first time the reader has seen it, but in actual fact, it was the first time the zombies and vampires had experienced it. So that was, for me, quite an interesting thing about setting up the conflict between the two of them. Mm -hmm. And who's the main character then? Okay, so the main character is um, Lavington Windsor, mm. or Tony Windsor, as she calls herself. She's very English. She's a country girl. She lives in a cottage, and she's trained as an estate agent. So she sells little country houses, mm. all big country houses to people. And recently, she started selling houses to vampires. So they want someone with a nice big cellar. <laughs> um, and at night, she's a necromancer, and she raises the dead. Mm -hmm. 
And the, the hook for that for me initially, which was going to maybe make it to the short story, but again, sort of spiraled out of control, was that she would help raise the dead to help her brother, who's a policeman, find out who'd killed them. So she would raise murder victims and find out who'd murdered them to help her police her police bro. And that stayed, interestingly. And that element of the, of the story persists. And um, I hope that as we go through the series, it will be something that I can build on. She is very feminine but she's completely kick-ass and when bad things happen she just gets up again i think she's a lot of fun and she's very sarcastic she's got a completely british snarky way of of speaking and because the um book is in first person mm-hmm. it's narrated in her completely snarky oh god not this again tone mm-hmm. so i think that hopefully is also a little bit original so I see that it's uh, also described as a cozy mystery. Um, so I'm curious, is she trying to solve a murder? Yes, she is going to be the amateur sleuth in every single volume. Mm-hmm. There is going to be um, a murder mystery that her brother needs her help solving, and it's going to involve her raising the dead, and maybe that will help, and maybe it won't. And it's cozy crime from that perspective. And I think definitely it's cozy because the the atmosphere, as I say, is very light. Mm-hmm. I'm really trying to keep these books free of angst. I love paranormal romance. Mm-hmm. I, I love the sort of zombie vampire genre, but it can be a bit plagued with angst. And I was really trying to keep these books free of that. You know, not make them silly and not never tackle serious subjects, but just keep that sort of frothy, buffy feeling going through the book. Mm-hmm. So with a book filled with vampires and zombies, there are a lot of murder suspects. I, um, <laughs> <laughs> I think in this book, um, and not in the others, there's a divide between her domestic um, murder that she's trying to solve and um, the vampire community that she's fallen into. But there isn't a divide between the um, sort of zombie aspect of it because she's always going to be a necromancer. So in, in this one, she's not thinking maybe a vampire is involved. Um, the mystery in this one is very much domestic. I'm going to mess that up in the later volumes, mm. but uh, the, there are plenty of deaths in this book and lots of head rippings, but they're actually kind of immune from her cosy crime mystery that's going on. Mm-hmm. So I've seen, um, I think some People have said the book is a bit gory. Not that that's a bad thing, but would you would you agree? <laughs> um, it is definitely as an element of horror in there. Lots of heads get ripped off, mm-hmm. um, entrails go flying, but it's very tastefully done. <laughs> Those entrails go flying tastefully, and it's not a sort of um, it's not a gore fest. It's not a slashery book. Mm-hmm. The horror is kind of incidental. It's not dwelled on, and it's not designed to make you feel icky or send you to bed with the light on. Mm. Are, are there gothic elements to it? I hope that the thing has a gothic tone to it, mm-hmm. very much so. There are stone dungeons, there are snarky vampires, there are um, dark places, there is a feeling of, you know, the past meeting the present. There's a sort of, I hope, sort of numinous dark velvet feel to some of it. So, yeah, I'm hoping people would say, ooh, there's a nice gothic undertone or overtone to this book, definitely. Cool. Um did you have to do much research for the book? 
Well, as I said, with my um, with my ambition to write a whodunit set in the twenties on a cruise ship, the main point of this book was to avoid research. Um, it's set in a village called Colton in Staffordshire. That's a real place, and I grew up there, so I didn't have to do a lot of research about Colton, for example. Um, I thought I would make the book completely free of the need to do research, but I fell over myself once because there is a scene, and I don't want to give you too many spoilers. If, um, to people listening, but there is a scene with a nail gun in it. I promise it's not super gory. But there is a scene with a nail gun. I thought, I've never used a nail gun. I'm going to get this all wrong, and nail gun aficionados are going to get turned off the book because you know, I've got it wrong. And I couldn't really think of why you it. I went to the big DIY store and I bought a nail gun. Mm-hmm. And I watched some YouTube videos and I learned how to use this nail gun. It's super useful. Mm-hmm. I use this nail gun all the time. It's <laughs> brilliant in the garden but that was the only way i could do it because i thought oh it so annoys me when you're reading a book and someone writes about something you know something about and they've clearly just made it up um so yeah i had to research my nail gun Mm -hmm. i mean for example if you read a lot of swords and sorcery Mm -hmm. there's always goldsmiths in there Mm -hmm. and silversmiths and metalsmiths in there whacking things with hammers and anvils i'm actually a trained silversmith And they always get it wrong. They're just making it up. They've never gone and whacked something on an amp, hot on an anvil with a hammer, you can tell. So, yeah, I didn't want to do that to people who love nail guns. Mm. Yeah, I was just imagining if you go to uh, buy your nail gun and you ask the um, thing, the attendant about the effects of a nail gun on, on the human body. Um, I, I'm not, yeah. I have no idea what, it, what you do in the story with it, but <laughs> I can imagine that. <laughs> If I shot an undead corpse from five meters, how far would these nails penetrate? <laughs> um, no, I didn't. I didn't try that one, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm speaking with Alice James, author of Grave Secrets. You can find more information on her work on Twitter at Tony Windsor or on her website alicejames.co.uk. If you like this podcast so far. Please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my website, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. You can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. And now back to the podcast. So it sounds like um, your research was more what you've done over the years, just living in your community and and just consuming, you know, like you said, Buffy and that sort of thing, just applying what you learned or picked up through that. Definitely. Um, But also there is a guy in the book called John Jones, who's a coroner. And that's a little bit of a family joke. My dad's name is John James. Mm -hmm. And he was a coroner in Staffordshire, Mm -hmm. where the book is set. So I grew up as a coroner's daughter, taking calls from the police and, you know, I'm Actually, in a leafy place like Staffordshire, there are what they call questionable deaths, you know, deaths where cause of death is not established. But, you know, they happen that that normally in relationship to trains or farm machinery or really often to cows. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they're not, we don't know how this person died and maybe they were murdered. So I wanted that sort of element as well to, to penetrate the book where she's in the countryside. If a death is unexplained, somebody probably got trodden on by a cow. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yes, as you say, and to to an extent, my research was growing up in that environment. 
so you have a pretty good, um, you have a strong foundational, uh, base in, in understanding that science then. I don't know that I, I, I would call it, um, I don't know that I'm expert on the science, but I actually, my first job when I was um, paying my way through as a student was I worked in the coroner's office answering the phone. And um, so the police would phone in and they would give you the details and I would take the details. And I often had to ask the very patient policeman to spell things for me. So, yeah, I kind of grew up absorbing that. And I know that sounds macabre, but it was actually a very friendly office. Hmm. Yeah. So it makes me wonder, so working in that environment, did you find it to be fairly standard and boring and you had to kind of make up fantastical things to make it exciting? Or was it pretty rough to work there and you wanted to, you know, there was some bit of escapism that you needed to tone it down? It was just so interesting. I mean, in fairness, it was dealt with, with a lot of delicacy and thoughtfulness and the sort of joshing that you see in crime fiction on TV and in the films. I certainly didn't see that. Um, there was an enormous amount of sensitivity and awareness that these bodies, before they were bodies, were people. So I think that helped give me a, you know, it, it wasn't, consequently it wasn't macabre and it wasn't grim. It was very very much part of life. And I think also if you grow up in the countryside, you walk past dead things all the time. Mm. If you take the dog for a walk, you will walk past a dead fox. You will walk past some dead frogs and a dead bunny rabbit and a dead bird and every now and then a dead sheep. You know, the, the, the countryside is just heaving with dead things. Mm. I mean, in, if you're a city person, when did you last see a dead thing? Mm. And so I think I do have a very kind of down-to-earth matter-of-fact attitude to oh my cat's just bought it an entire dead rabbit um, i'll just get some oven gloves <laughs> but by the same token that also means the countryside is filled with a lot of life that's kind of hidden away and there are all these little secrets yes definitely and i think that i mean people who live in the countryside feel they have a special insight into it i don't know that we do we're just surrounded by it um mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you very smugly complained that the birds were so loud this morning. <laughs> it, but it, I, I do think navigating the countryside is actually, is, is, is a skill you learn. For example, my friend's a city girl. She can't recognize nettles. She's always walking into nettles if we go for a walk <laughs> because she's almost never seen them. I'm like, did you not see that? She's like, Alice, there are 600,000 different kinds of leaves here. And I couldn't tell that one nasty one from the normal one. So. <laughs> There is an element of if you grow up in this countryside, you're, you're aware of different things. And I'm not really a city girl, so I'm forever nearly walking out in front of traffic. So it swings and roundabouts. And, and I asked the question because I'm just kind of exploring sort of the feel of this book, Grave Secrets. Um, you know, the countryside feel that it would have. Definitely. I mean, one of my proofreaders went, how do you know the names of all these kinds of farm machinery, Alice? I'm like, you're joking, right? Everyone knows what a home topper is. And she's like, seriously, Alice, no. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay. Um, but I was impressed because, um, again, don't want to spoil things for anybody. At some point there is a, a battle that takes place and someone grabs a ditching shovel mm -hmm. as their weapon. You're always going to find one of those on a farm. Mm -hmm. And I was delighted that when they 
put in an illustration in the book, the illustrator had very clearly put in a ditching shovel. It wasn't any common or garden shovel. She'd got that right straight away. So I thought, oh, oh illustrator's a country girl. Wow. And so, and the interesting thing is that, you know, one of the, one of the popular aspects of mysteries is that I think a lot of them are sort of tour guides into a different kind of world that people haven't experienced mm -hmm. before. And it sounds like mm -hmm. the, the mystery aspect of this book allows people to explore the English countryside in a very detailed way that they might not expect. I hope so. I did try to give it, I think what they call it, an Argosarga feel, where you feel you are in the English countryside. There's a scene where there's a croquet match, and I am so rubbish at croquet, it's unbelievable. <laughs> Some of my friends are really good at croquet, and I was like, oh, please, let's not play croquet again. I always get completely minced. And, oh, no, we must play croquet. And it is, it's a horrible, vicious, mean, nasty game, and I thought, I'm going to... I'm going to have a croquet scene, and, and my heroine's going to feel just exactly about croquet as I do. And so that was quite fun, but I do feel that if you've never played croquet, and you thought, I know, I'm going to get to be good, you should have some idea just about, like, what a mean game it is before you run in there and get completely trounced. You don't have a scene of vampires getting frustrated playing the game, do you? I don't, no, because, of course, croquet you play in daytime. Oh, yes. <laughs> that's true. yes that's an important point i forget <laughs> though you can't you can't play croquet at night at all with well uh, actually there is um if you've got like a biggish front room you can play carpet croquet mm. um, and you have a little goal instead of a hole for the croquet balls mm -hmm. um, and i have actually after dinner when some wine has been consumed i have played carpet croquet with friends and i'm completely rummish at that as well so that might be fine. That might be, who knows um all right so let's talk about um so you mentioned buffy is as sort of an inspiration for what you mm. uh like um are there any other books uh music any uh shows of any sort that that inspire you I, I read an awful lot of um, fantasy, and when I was a kid, if I, I went straight for anything that had a dragon on the front. Mm. Uh, these days, you know, anything with like a vampire crawling across the cover, I'm game for that as well. Mm. Uh, and yeah, I loved, I loved Buffy. That was probably my first. I, I was going to say my first um, experience of vampires being treated in a very light-hearted way, but of course, there's that that lovely old film, Love at First Bite, which mm. is just adorable as well. I mean, in terms of books, the first vampire books that I got completely absorbed into uh, were Barbara Hambly's. She wrote, um, this, she's still writing this series, but she actually started it in the 80s, and I think the first one was called Travelling with the Dead. And she's a proper historian, and she, you know, set this um, like 100, 150 years ago, and she'd obviously really done her work, and it's a very, very gothic, dark, slow-moving, um, numinous, gorgeously... It's, it's, it's a lovely piece, and all of hers are in this... that she's been doing in, in the same atmosphere. And then, obviously, there are... I mean, it's, it's a huge genre. If you if you go into a bookshop now, they, some of them have, like, an entire paranormal romance or... Mm. Um, urban fantasy shelf mm -hmm. 
and Tanya Huff's blood books are absolutely adorable. I think she has like her vampire is the ex hundred year old bastard son of Henry the Eighth or something. Mm. But just adorable. And again, light hearted, even though they do touch on serious things. Mm. I mean, in terms of in terms of TV series, oh, I'm I'm a huge Buffy fan. I think I've watched the entire seven series of Buffy through about four times mm. um i think they're just majestically gorgeous and i love the way that they really do tackle serious subjects mm. like when buffy's mum dies and things like that but at the same time they're so light-hearted there are laugh out loud moments and they play on this thing of the alter ego where she's got to be normal buffy in her day-to-day life and superheroine buffy and they they pitch those against each other delightfully. Mm. I wanted to do a little of that with Tony, um, my protagonist, who's got to pretend to everyone except her brother that she is just a jobbing estate agent who just sells houses, but then at night, you know, it's all blood and salt and rent, you know, ripping the dead from their graves mm. and stuff. Yeah. And I wanted to be funny, but not silly. I wanted mm. it to have lightness to it rather than being really quite disgusting. You know, rotting bodies drawn from graves could be really quite unpleasant. I wanted to be <laughs> engaging. Yeah. Just to step back to the dragons for a moment, uh, what, what was your favorite? Did you have a favorite mm-hmm. dragon? Oh, did I have a favorite dragon? So I loved the Hobbit. I absolutely loved it. I'm not actually the world's biggest fan of the Lord of the Rings, but I never got over just how awesome Smaug is. He's big and bad, but he's complicated. There's a lot of backstory going on with that dragon. Mm-hmm. And I think I was, it wasn't actually my, my first I don't think my first dragon book, my mum used to take my sister and I to the bookshop and depart in the department store and leave us there whilst she did all the shopping. And we were told that we could have two books each when she came to pick us up. And that was our way of bribing us (laughs) to be good citizens while she did all the shopping. And it worked a treat. And she would come back and she said, your sisters would always have horses or spaceships on the cover and yours would always have dragons. Hmm. And it's right. I look at my childhood books that I bought for myself, and they are they are teeming with scales. Uh, there's one I think a short story by Roger Zelazny. I might be making this up, where he goes back and retells the story of George and the Dragon in a really snarky way. Hmm. And I remember reading that as a kid, and thinking it was so clever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, basically, the dragon and the hero go around ripping off townships, he'll kidnap a princess and then he'll, you know, pretend that the knight defeats and the knight will get the treasure and they'll split it, you know. Mm. It's a lovely subversion of the myth. <laughs> I'm going to feel silly if it's not Rogers and Aston, but I think it is. That was one of my favourites when I was a kid. Hmm. So, going back to uh, the book Grave Secrets, what would, would you say, what would you say the soundtrack for the book might be? Like, what sort of musical aesthetic would you say it has Mm. so something quite gothy sort of sisters of mercy kind of thing definitely Mm. um but also there'd be sort of a light a lighter tone to it Mm. um so yeah but it's definitely would definitely have 80s gothic soundtrack Mm. okay 
So you said this is, I, I believe this is your first novel. Is there, would you say there's anything you do out of the ordinary as far as maybe compared to other writers, you know, of who, you know, as far as doing your first drafts or your final draft or anything? I didn't do a lot of editing. Mm -hmm. I have to say that the final draft is incredibly close to what I first wrote. Mm -hmm. um, and apparently that isn't, I think because I spend so much time thinking about it before I write, mm -hmm. but I've got it in my head very coherently before it goes down on the page. And I think that just comes from working as a wire journalist and working against the clock. You have so little time to get stuff down on paper mm -hmm. that you've got to get it nearly right first time. I mean, I've heard that there are two ways of doing books, that you're a pantser or a plotter. Mm -hmm. I'm definitely a pantser. I've got a strong feeling of atmosphere, and I just let the book pan out from there. Mm -hmm. um, there is the murder mystery in the book, and our murder victim has been murdered in an unusual way. And I have to say that when I put that in, I had no idea how they'd been murdered, or who by, or how... Tony was going to solve it. I just knew that it was going to be central to the plot and I would work it out as I went along. I don't know how original that is, but that's definitely my kind of get the atmosphere right first, people it with interesting characters, pan out from there, it'll all work out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you dropped when you said which one you were, so I assume you said pantser. Yeah, definitely a pantser, definitely. Yeah. I don't plot anything. Yeah. I don't think about definitely so you... pantser. Okay. Um, so, ju so you mentioned some of the work you've done before you've, you wrote your novel, um, the silver smithing, you know, the, um, the Bloomberg journalism stuff, are, are there any other jobs you had that, uh, that maybe influenced how or what you write about? Well, I'm a complete geek. Mm -hmm. I really, 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 really wanted to study computer science at college, mm -hmm. but I didn't go to a school that really studied it or had that as an option. So I actually went to university to study maths, but I only did maths where I could do a computer science split. Mm -hmm. And so I was always the only girl there. And I was always the only girl amongst my friends who was super into the latest kit or the latest um, computer games or the latest graphic novels or the, the, the you know, the, the latest role playing game. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm, I think that I don't think I brought that so much to bear in this novel but i did feel that you know having tony be the the fish out of water in the vampire situation he was like yeah i know how you feel there's you and you don't know what's going on <laughs> and, you, and you want to but you don't want to let everyone know that you are just out of your depth <laughs> so i think i brought that to the book rather than you know my my in-depth knowledge of COBOL programming Actually, one one interesting story as far as a silversmithing. There's a joke in your bio that uh, creating the one ring wasn't as easy as you thought, or something to that effect. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, so when you've made things, you can engrave them, and you need super steady hands for engraving. I'm great at whacking things really hard with a hammer, and I'm so rubbish at engraving. And you need also, once you've got it wrong, you've ruined the piece. Hmm. So a lot of people will make the piece and then they'll hand it over to an engraver to finish. But I wanted to do it all myself. And I was actually never good enough to do that. Um, there is there is a thing you can do. You can 
emboss you can emboss letters and then shape them and it's just a much clunkier and and not a nice finish in the same way so if you want to make a ring with words inscribed around the middle basically you don't want me to do it for you because that is completely out of my skill set hmm. do you ever go to renaissance fairs i'm sorry do you ever attend renaissance fairs are you familiar with those oh yes um in the uk you call them a reenactment fair oh okay um and um, one of my friends is super into um viking and medieval reenactments mm -hmm. and um so we would go along to the the fairs together and i just enchanted by the way people will use traditional tools to in traditional ways to create these traditional items i think it absolutely fascinating she's actually one of the world's experts on a craft called tablet weaving Mm -hmm. which was very popular um, around the time of the Vikings. And the Vikings used to do a lot of tablet weaving. And it's a way of making decorative braid to go around your clothes. Mm -hmm. And she's actually recreated these braids in the right fabric, using the right technique um, to echo ones that have been dug up in archaeological digs. Mm -hmm. And so she's been able to recreate them, knowing what the dyes were. And it's like, okay, this is what this would have looked like when this Viking person wore it around the color of their dress. So I find that absolutely fascinating. Um, it's not something I've done except sort of helping people to make costumes. Mm -hmm. But um, I wouldn't mind if I ever had time to have like a, a silversmithing forge of my own here. I wouldn't mind having a go at it. So I was going to ask if you still do any smithing of any kind. So occasionally I have rented space at one of the local places where you um, or just booked myself into an evening class so I can have 10 sort of one to hour sessions at a, at a um, jewelry space because I, I do want to keep my hand in and it is a lovely thing to do. And it's greater if you give somebody something that you've made, even if it's just like simple earrings or a simple ring. Um, so yeah, I do, I don't have anywhere here at the moment where I can do it, but um, I do have a very tempting shed at the bottom of my garden that I think has a nice fireproof look to it. It's made of stone. So I think, you know, when I get a, get a bit of time, that does have uh, has a forge-like look to it. I'm speaking with Alice James, author of Grave Secrets. You can find more information on her work on Twitter at Tony Windsor or on her website, alicejames.co.uk. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my website, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. You can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. And now back to the podcast. As far as the uh, financial reporting work you did, how, how did you get into that? Was that something you wanted to do or was it just kind of... It was completely accidental. It was nearly as accidental as writing Grave Secrets. Mm -hmm. um, I was working as an um, academic research editor for um, a public uh, publishers that, that published academic research journals, and I was editing for them. Mm -hmm. Bizarrely, that's what I do at the moment. Well, I'm not writing novels. I'm a, an academic research editor again um, for a different company. And I was like, oh, I want to do something a little bit more face-to-face, -face, meeting a few 
more people and also um, ah, these journals are a bit cut and dry. I'd, I'd like to read something more interesting. And I applied for a job as the wire journalist um, in London and they hired me even though I didn't have any experience to do it because they thought, oh, she can do a bit of writing, a bit of, bit of journalism, a bit of editing. And I went in and was interviewed um, and they were absolutely lovely people and I think that's what sold me and they went, we actually want a foreign exchange journalist and editor and we think you'll be okay. And I was like, what's foreign exchange? And they were like, it's when you change your pounds into drachma. It's how many drachma you get for your pounds. And I was like, oh, okay, I could do that. And apparently they, they, looked, they interviewed all the people on their shortlist and they didn't like any of them and they interviewed me and I had not made the shortlist. But they interviewed me and they liked me. So, yeah, I started the following Monday and that's, that's how much planning I put into that career move. <laughs> Did that involve any exotic travel or was that all just local? Um, as a financial journalist, I did travel, um, and for Bloomberg, you know, it would send you to New York to cover for a journalist over there. Um, so I didn't do a lot of the super exotic travel. Um, I have a friend who um, seems to end up in every third world nation and war zone hmm. out there covering stuff um, for the BBC, but I just went to sort of the financial centres. Um, and sat in conference rooms. But, you know, it did teach me not to be afraid of traveling at a moment's notice and just getting a new visa on your passport and just going out to that place and doing that thing and then coming back again. Mm -hmm. And and the hedge fund work, do you want to mention that at all? Or is that... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I thought it would be fun to make a bit of a career move. And um, people like... Bloom, ex Bloombergers, because they know you know you tend to be able to pick things up very quickly. So I was hired in pre as press and PR director of this little um, hedge fund, and it was just before the crash. And it, I joined just before the worst eighteen months ever in the history of the hedge fund industry. So it wasn't a lot of fun. Everyone was miserable, and we were losing money every month. And then just after I left, the police and the regulators raided them. So oh. I, I don't know. Maybe I just got out in time. It's not, it was not a stellar career move, and I have left, you know, I was like, honestly, writing fantasy novels has to be uh, has to be a more stable career move than that. <laughs> and I ask because I think people are always interested in the, uh, you have such a fascinating journey, and I think people would, mm -hmm. would find it interesting how you made your way to publishing your first novel, so. Um, yeah, that was, it wasn't planned at all. Um, as I said, I wanted, I did want to write novels, but I had this grand idea where I was going to write these beautiful, beautifully crafted whodunits set on a cruise ship in the 1920s, 1930s. And um, I wrote the vampire, I wrote the Tony books almost as practice. And then my friend who'd been proofreading them for me said, Alice, you need to get these published. They're so much fun. And so I wrote to some agents and um simon kavanagh rang me back and he was like this is so much fun let's do it i was mm. like seriously he's like alice you can't go wrong with sexy vampires that's that's a good short good piece of advice there <laughs> yeah um and he he made me make a few edits to the book. And I have to say, I had been expecting more. And he was like, right, I'm going to go and sell it. And then he went off and disappeared into this deafening silence. Mm. And 
I actually texted him one day because I thought he'd forgotten all about me. And I was like, Simon, it's my birthday tomorrow. So that would make tomorrow a really excellent day for some good news. And he phoned me back literally then and there and went, oh, yeah, I sold your book. I was like, oh, happy birthday to me. <laughs> he forgot to mention that to you. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, I think he was um, going to wait until he got the contract that he was happy with and then tell me. So I think he was going to give me a complete package, but actually, because I told him it was my birthday, he was like, I haven't got a contract for you yet. I've sold your book. Oh. That was a nice birthday present. Yeah. No, I, I, I see where he's coming from in, in that regard. Um, yeah. Do you think you could have, so considering the, the skills you developed as a journalist, do you think you could have successfully written this book before you became a journalist? Or did those skills help you create um, it? definitely didn't well i'm not someone who naturally has a lot of skills as a writer i'm great at getting facts down you know i'm good at getting a lot of facts into a short amount of space but if you were to read my prose from a few years ago it's very very dry it's very very dull it's you know she's a financial journalist and when i first started trying to write novels i didn't have a lot of lyrical skill I mean, people like J.K. Rowling, they sit down, they write one book, and it's an absolute humdinger. Mm -hmm. I mean, I sat down and tried to write a book, and in fairness, when I go back to it, it's not that it's got no merit, it's just not very well written. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I carried on writing as a journalist, I carried on writing as a journalist, I carried on writing as a PR, I carried on writing as a freelancer, um, I did some travel journalism for Dante magazine and I carried on writing and I think the thing is that by the time I sat down and wrote Grave Secrets, I had acquired enough writing skill to make it read well enough that Simon wanted to go out and sell it for me. So definitely I didn't have skills beforehand, but I think the main skill is sheer ability at agreeable writing style. I just don't think I had that. Were there any writers that whose style you really liked that you wanted to emulate? Um, I mean, there are a lot of writers whose style just is amazing and wonderful and gorgeous. Um, I mean, I think, for example, if you've read um, the um, Anne Leckie sp uh, quartet that she wrote in space, she's amazing at switching points of view. She'll do it over and over and over and over and over again and somehow not break the pace and that's such a magnificent talent um and i i would love to be able to do that i i she just seems to do it without thinking because she'll do it six times in one chapter and somehow it doesn't break the pace um there's an art, uh, a writer i love called emily Sinjin mandel um she wrote station 11 i don't know if you read it and she is the queen of the slow burn you're three quarters of the way through the book and you're like well it's beautiful but what's it about yeah. i'm not putting it down you understand because it's beautiful mm -hmm. but what's it about and um so they're all people where i think oh i would just love to be able to write like that um and i think that i don't again if you i don't know if you've come across it there's a a, a writer a fancy children's fancy writer from a zillion years ago called Beverly Nichols and she wrote a book called The Stream That Stood Still. It's just a little children's book mm -hmm. and she, it's not gory and there's no, there's no 
hideous bloodshed and it's a children's book with fish and um and um otters and um princesses and magic and somehow i'm so scared for the hero and heroine in there that you know with the kids in it and that she had me even when i reread the book hmm. i was i'm scared for them just catching that narrative tension absolutely amazing and um, Naomi Novik, her, her book Spinning Silver, which is set a uh, retelling of sort of icy Russian fairy tales, you feel cold when you're reading it. And these people are in the snow. You feel cold. You catch this sense of being in this unbearably icy place and wondering if your fingers will ever defrost. And I just, I think, if you can catch even one percent of that in your writing, sometimes you're just winning. Um, so yeah, I, I sometimes I read a book, and even if I don't love the story, I'm like, but I love the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And I think if, if every time you ring a book, read a book, you're able to bring an, just another half percent of that to your own writing, then you're still learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I ask because you mentioned that you know your you said your writing early on was dry journalistic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just mm-hmm. curious how you trained yourself to become more a creative. I just wrote. I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. I mean, it is the first novel that I've had published. Mm-hmm. It's the third one that I finished, and it's about the eighth that I started. Mm-hmm. Um, and in between, as I say, I was working for um, as a travel writer as well, which is far more creative. Mm-hmm. And I think just simply the sheer practice of having to write more lyrical stuff day after day after day um, – and reading it, writing it and reading it and thinking about it. You know, it's, I read a lot of graphic novels as well, and I'm always with my writing thinking, well, I don't have a picture here. I don't have that lovely illustration. How am I going to catch it with my words? Mm-hmm. So developing that creativity, do you, would you say that it was more about understanding different kinds of writing rules as far as developing it, or is it more a stream of consciousness uh, feel as you write, like you just kind of let go? Oh, it's definitely the latter. I'm not a rules person. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do with any day when I get up, and I don't know what I'm going to do with the second half of the day at lunchtime. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm not a planner. Um, I certainly don't consciously apply any writing techniques when I'm writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't know where to begin. And I say, and when I reference rules, I'm talking about rules where it's like, you know, make sure you don't have the same sentence structure, each line, you know, kind of mix up how you use the verbs, where you place them in the sentence, that sort of thing. You know, I do. If I'm reading stuff after I've written it and I come back to it, I'm like, Oh, I use the same verb, two paragraphs running. So Mm -hmm. I'll change that. Mm -hmm. I think, that is what I write is is tends to be in my mind very strongly before I write it. Mm-hmm. So most of that is actually edited out before it's actually on the page. Mm-hmm. Have you ever just sat at home in the countryside and just described a scene in writing that uh, that you see just to practice for writing purposes? I would do that in the city. Because the countryside to me is is too is so familiar mm. that I, I um 
Um, but I have done that in the city just to improve, just to see if I could do it. I've described a journey where someone went from A to B, and then I put interesting things in that journey. So I've described, as surely as practice, I've described the journey from Paddington Station um, to London Bridge mm. and how someone would do that and the things they would encounter on way. And I've rewritten it and rewritten it and rewritten it and, to see, and done it in different ways just, just to see what comes out on the page. But I've not really tried that with the countryside because, I don't know, it's too familiar to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know nettles without thinking. Um, mm. <laughs> It'd be a bit dull. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So a, a bit of a whimsical question, and maybe I can guess the answer, but um, was there any power technology or fictional setting you yearned for or to have when you were younger? Oh, um, I wanted a boat. I wanted a boat that could, I mean, um, I always had... People say, oh, a, magic, a, a, a magical thing that could take me somewhere. I, w- I would want a boat that could take magical boat. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love boats. I had this magical barge that my sister and I created together in, in our stories. Mm-hmm. And on the bottom of the barge, it was very futuristic science fiction, rusting metal, mm-hmm. um, robots. And then on the roof of the barge, there's a wonderful garden full of elves and magic. And, and we would just create this place for hours. My sister, my mum would say, what are you guys talking about? And I'm like, mum, we're doing the barge. Uh, yeah, I was going to say your your sister was the science fiction one. Yes. Um, she She's actually a serious scientist and a serious banker. She's got a doctorate in physics from Oxford. Mm-hmm. And now she's a professor of finance at two separate universities. Right. So she's super clever. Mm-hmm. And she was really into astronomy. She went off to study physics because she loved astronomy. Mm-hmm. So she was always into science fiction when she was young. Um, I say she was always into science fiction. She was also super into horses because she had a horse. So my, as I say, my, my shelves were covered with elves and dragons and princesses. And her shelves were covered in science fiction and spaceships and robots and horses. Mm-hmm. Did you ever imagine yourself riding a dragon, or was there other another magical creature that you would ride? Um, we created these weird kind of winged monkeys that were a little <laughs> like the monkeys in um, the flying monkeys that, that that the witch kills in the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. That the witch has in the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. But also cute and nice and friendly flying monkeys. Um, yeah. I, I think in retrospect, when I look at the, the pictures that my sister and I drew of them, they're actually quite creepy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I look at them like, we thought that was cute. That, that's actually quite, they're a bit uncanny valley. I, I was scared you were going to say the monkeys from <laughs> Wizard of Oz, and you did. Yeah. Um, they, 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 I mean, they weren't really like those. They were was sort of cute and friendly and furry and, and there was something in between horses and monkeys in their own weird way. Um, I don't know. What, perhaps that was my sister's fondness for horses trying to meet my fondness for fantasy. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So did your magic barge go around the earth or into other dimensions or other planets? Our magic barge was, in retrospect, a bit snowpiercer. It went on a river that went around the world um, through different magical realms that had different things going on in them. 
and those probably reflected the books that we'd read at the time or the films and programs and cartoons that we'd seen at the time mm-hmm. would reflect the changing magical worlds that our barge went through. Mm. It's pretty cool. Did you, so you talked a little bit about finishing this book. Did you have, were there any other difficulties in finishing it or getting it published? Well, I didn't try to get it published immediately because I still had this lovely idea I was going to write my wonderful whodunits set on a cruise ship. You're sick of hearing about my unwritten (laughs) whodunits set on a cruise ship. So I didn't think that I was there yet. I still didn't have time to do loads of research. So I just carried on writing the Tony books. Mm-hmm. And um, when I when my friend was like, no, you've got to get these published, I was like, you've got to get these published. I was like, well, I don't know how you publish a book. Do you self-publish it? Do you get a publisher? Do you get an agent? And I asked the internet, and the internet said, if you don't know what you're doing, you should get an agent. <laughs> and I wrote to a couple of agents, and they were like, um, thank you for your book, which we don't want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, there is a newspaper in the UK called The Guardian, and they run masterclasses whereby you go and someone who's an expert in that industry will give you an afternoon of their time and you sit at the Guardian offices with whoever else has paid for this masterclass. Mm-hmm. And my, my, uh, my friend said, look, the Guardian are doing a masterclass in getting an agent. And I was like, okay. So I paid my fee. I got on the train. I went to London. And I sat in the Guardian offices. And this guy gave a very helpful synopsis of how you get an agent Mm -hmm. and I followed it to the letter and my agent Simon rang me back he was one of the shortlists of agents that I'd written to and he said Alice let's do this because you can't go wrong with sexy vampires (laughs) and Mm -hmm. that I I literally haven't had to do anything else myself since then in a way I mean not I mean I've done the editing and I've done you know we've worked on doing the covers and I've done interviews that um, Rebellion have asked me to, and I've written blogs that Rebellion have asked me to do, but I haven't needed to learn any more about publishing books because I have an agent and a publisher and they do all of that, so Mm. I'm as clueless as I ever was. (laughs) But that masterclass sounds like it was a good investment, and now I feel like a lot of people are going to do it. It was a very, very, very good investment. it was not that expensive, and as I say, I got on the train and I sat there and I took a lot of notes, and when I went back, I followed those notes to the letter, and here we are. Wow, nice. And I feel like your um, your 1920s cruise ship is like uh, is frozen in time, and they're all <laughs> waiting for you to breathe life into them. I really would like to finish it. Um, the Tony books are an ongoing series, and they get more whodunity as they go along. The the murder mystery in the first one is a little bit, not shoved to one side, but I'm introducing the whole world, so it's not got as much playtime as it has in later books. I love book three because it's got a completely banging locked room murder mystery in it that completely works. Um, I think there's going to be ten books by the end. I'm finishing off book eight, so I've got a nice... Got nice um, set banked there, and hopefully, um, when I I mean, I, you're right about the cruise ship mystery because actually, when I get time down from Tony, I'm writing science fiction at the moment. Mm. <laughs> yeah, uh, that cruise ship mystery is never getting written, is it? <laughs> um, yeah, I was gonna Maybe ask, you- what's that? Maybe. <laughs> 
they'll just keep sailing around and around with nothing going yeah. on. Light my badge. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was going to ask what your next writing project is, but it sounds like you're pretty much wrapping this series up. And um, I have finished a standalone science fiction novel, which I really love. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is the next thing that um, I'm going to try and bring out. And I've moved. I need some downtime from Tony because with marketing the book, she's every single moment of my spare time at the moment. Um, at the moment, so when I get downtime to write, I'm actually writing writing a swords and sorcery trilogy with um, lots of sand and lots of elephants and dragons. It's got dragons uh -huh. in it at last. <laughs> and flying monkeys. Christ no. <laughs> Oh boy. Let's leave those behind, shall we? No more flying monkeys. It was oh. a phase we went children. Yeah. So the um these ten books is will Tony be pretty much the same kind of age throughout, or does it cover sort of a span of her life? Um, I think most of them are a few months apart, mm. and one and a couple of them follow on immediately. Mm. So actually. It's not that a huge amount of time will pass. Mm -hmm. It's not that 20 years will pass and we'll see her move through different aspects of her life. I don't want it to be sort of in stasis because there is a there is an overarching storyline as well as you discover the origins of vampires and zombies and why they are conflicted with each other. Mm -hmm. And I do have a lot, a very strong idea of the metaphysics underpinning the undead and her powers as a necromancer and how it is that she can raise things from the dead and her grandfather and great grandfather could raise things from the dead, but other people can't. So I've got a very, I'd say I'm not a strong rules person, but I think if you're going to have a magic system or a, a necromagic system, you've got to have rules and they've got to be weird because it's not science, mm -hmm. but they've got to be consistent. You're not make, you can't you can't make the foundations up as you go along, even if you're making the story up as, as you go along. Mm -hmm. Your metaphysics has got to be solid and coherent. D yeah. Did you create most of the foundation before the first book or after the first um, book? So I had the luxury of not publishing the first book immediately. So as the uh, metaphysics became much more coherent and as I had the backstory becoming concrete and the origin mythology gelling into place and cementing that in so that it works, I was able to go back and make the little tweaks to book one. And they were quite little mm. so that it will be coherent through the series and you won't be, oh, clearly James changed her mind in book five mm -hmm. about how raising the dead works. I hope that won't happen. Mm. So where can people find you online? Website, social media? Yeah, I'm, I'm on Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, that was an idea of my publishers. I'm still a bit scared of Twitter. Mm -hmm. It's very big and there are a lot of people there and they're all very passionate. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I am, I am on Twitter. Um, and I have a small website, which is uh, alicejames.co.uk. Um, my hobby is also as a photographer, so I'm putting up some of my photographs there, but I'm also going to be blogging about how I've managed to get an agent, how I've got a publisher, how you choose a cover for a novel, um, how you, you know, make your, how you make your protagonist convincing, how you write 
action scenes when it's incredibly difficult and you're not very good at them. So that kind of thing. So the Twitter, uh, what's your Twitter handle? I am at Tony Windsor because it was free and available, so I took it. Okay. And I'll spell that. It's T-O-N-I-W-I-N-D-S-O-R. Yep. Correct. And I will say that I found that authors who have uh, Twitter accounts, at least promotional, promotion-wise, um, get a lot more visibility. Like when I post these interviews, they get a lot more visibility <laughs> if they have a Twitter account than if they don't. I've noticed that. Well, it's, it's love, been lovely meeting the book reviewing community on Twitter mm -hmm. because they're so dynamic and they're so enthusiastic. Oh, my goodness, they read books. Mm -hmm. You know, they... They obviously every minute that they're not actually at their day jobs or eating or sleeping or indulging in essential personal hygiene, <laughs> they're reading. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're reading book after book after book and putting out their honest reviews. And, you know, it's a tremendous community and they've been very welcoming. And, you know, some people have, have said, I really wanted to like this book and I didn't. And I'm like, oh, well, you, you tried. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And some people are like, I love this book. I'm like, thank you for saying that. It's so wonderful to hear. But yeah, that's that's been the nice thing about Twitter has been getting to know and engage with the, the book bloggers and the book blogging community. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? No, this is my first ever interview. So I was super nervous coming into it. And I think I haven't made too much of a wasik of myself. So yeah, it's been fun. Thank you for asking me on. And um, I've enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been fascinating. Um, it's been a great talk. I appreciate it very much. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, please subscribe. Please also rate Full Contact Nerd and review it if you can. I have many more options to nerd out on sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. You can check out my website, chrisalvarez.com. That's Chris without an H. I have 20 mini-blogs on the site covering sci-fi, fantasy, horror, gaming, writing, mysteries, folklore, mythology, and many more topics. You can find my video playlists and my original videos on YouTube under Chris Alvarez. I cover sci-fi short films and games, fantasy fiction, horror short films and games, video and board game design, and more. You can get interesting news on fiction and fiction studies on my Twitter page, Chris Alvarez FCN. You can find cosplay and convention photos on my Instagram page, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi. You can sign up for my newsletter on new books on my websites chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. Thank you for listening, and keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.